Welcome to Illuminata Podcast. I'm Charlotte. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. We are three young researchers that want to highlight the importance of women in agriculture who are part of the STEM community. We're so proud to be a part of this and we want to share with you the real life of some extraordinary women making a difference in their field. Let's break the stereotypes and show what we really are. Are you ready to be inspired? Hello, guys. Welcome. Thanks. Welcome to the podcast, Beth. And thank you for joining us and making time in your busy schedule to join us. How are you, Beth? Yes, all right. Sorry, I've got a cold. So if I sound a bit snuffly, that's why. (laughs) Just getting over it. So you just came back from maternity leave, right? Yeah, yeah. So about two weeks ago, just came back full time. So I was working part time, I was working one day a week since April, um, when my baby was about three and a half months old, um, remotely. And then I've just come back full-time in the office. <laughs> How do you feel about this? Uh, good, very good. It's quite nice to do something different and that feel a bit competent at something. But uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult to do when you haven't had very much sleep. That's all I would say. <laughs> Okay, so let's get started with our questions. Can you please give us a quick biography? If you could talk about your childhood, your university studies, and your current job position as well. Sure, sure. So um, so I guess I'm Beth Penrose. Um, I grew up in the UK, village just outside of the city of Bristol. Um, And actually, funnily enough, um, although I didn't really think it was that interesting at the time, uh, I actually grew up next to an agricultural research station. It literally was about 20 metres away from my house. And it's a, it was a horticultural research station. And so they made a very famous cider, actually, um, and uh, black currants and all sorts of other things. So there was always uh, researchers around the village, which was quite strange, really. So I grew up there. Um, I went to university um, actually when I was 21, so a bit later than normal, because uh, I'd been to, I went to art school um, after I finished high school, and then I worked at a science centre, and, and that's when I sort of realised that I quite liked science. I had no science qualifications whatsoever at all, um, and they let me into university because I was over 21, um, so you're a mature student, um, theoretically, and so let me into environmental science and I did environmental science uh, with a year in industry um, at the University of the West of England in Bristol um, and then I did my PhD straight from there based at the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology in the north of England in Lancaster with uh, Nottingham University. Um, yep yeah, and then I did a short postdoc and then I came here to my current job uh, where I'm a lecturer in pasture science um, at the University of Tasmania in the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture. Awesome! I have a question. Sure. Why art? What inspired you to undertake art? Sure. Well, I guess um, I, I was sort of all right at it. I wasn't actually that great looking back, but I was all right at it and I enjoyed it. 
um, and uh, allowed me to be creative. And I, so when, at the time anyway, in the UK, when you went, you did the final two years of high school, you only choose three or four subjects to specialize in. Um, and uh, I chose art, uh, fashion, art, fashion, philosophy, and psychology. So basically no science really at all. Um, and I didn't think I was clever enough to do science or maths or those kind of things. I also think that um, there's this misunderstanding around science and that it's not creative. And that actually I use my training in art all the time. Just the way of yes. thinking, the way in which we they break down all of your preconceptions. That's part of the art process. And then you start from the beginning. Um, I use all of that all the time. And so I don't regret doing art first actually um but I think there is this misunderstanding that you need to be super clever and um you know I went to a very large high school with sort of 2,000 people in it and I just felt like I wasn't really made to do science at all despite doing quite well at, at GCSE which is what we take when we're 16 I just didn't think it was for me and nobody really ever encouraged me to be honest. And also biology, I was quite interested in biology of sort of animals and a bit of plants, but I wasn't really that interested in humans. And so it all seemed to be about humans. And I was like, I don't care about the liver. And so I don't want, I don't want to do it. And then funny enough, I'm now a scientist. That's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. But anyway, you're the first person that we interviewed that did um, previous, like previous period to science, like art art like studies before getting into science but as you were saying like science and and art they really really go very well together actually it's like without art there is no science and like it's kind of like they go together so you need both you need to be creative to be a scientist as well so it's very important okay next question so growing up what was your dream career and who inspired you along the way i was thinking really hard about this um, so I was like obsessed with the ocean when I was a kid and actually I'm still obsessed with the ocean I actually live on a boat um yeah well, we, we're, gonna, we're gonna go there like later <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah a question sure. for that. <laughs> um but uh yeah so um I'm still a bit obsessed with the ocean I when I was really small sort of maybe seven or eight I I was quite interested in being a marine biologist and then that sort of went out the window for some reason. And I genuinely thought I was going to be an artist or a fashion designer. And, you know, I was sort of on that path. And then I realised I wasn't actually that good. Um, and, and, and it didn't fulfil me in the way that I thought it was going to be. And when I went to university to do my undergraduate degree, I, had, um, I went to my first ever lecture. And the first ever lecture was on the evolutionary history of plants. So we started from mosses and liverworts and sort of went onwards. And uh, I remember very distinctly going and I turned around to somebody who's became a very good friend of mine afterwards. And I said, what's a gamete? And she was like, oh my days, like you need to read some books. And I was like, okay, sort of toddled off to the library. Um, and the person who gave that lecture was um, a lecturer called Neil Willey, who's a um, plant nutritionist at the University of the West of England. 
and he was a massive inspiration. Um, his lectures were amazing. He just sort of breathed the love of plants, which I sort of took in and was like, yes, absolutely, that's what I want to do. It's so nice when you when you have a professor that is so passionate. He passed his passion to you and you became passionate about what he's passionate or he or she. And I had a couple of these professors. I'm very grateful for them. Yeah, I was super lucky. He was great. There's been lots of people who have inspired me since then. You know, um, one of my PhD supervisors were all very inspiring. Um, so my, one of my PhD supervisors is I was is a guy called uh, Martin Broadley. He's now actually the uh, director at Rothamsted um, Research, which is a big uh, agricultural plant research place in the UK. But you know he has been a very important person in uh, plant nutrition and in biofortification, so increasing uh, nutrients in, in crops for human health. Um, and that's massively inspired me. And I've sort of carried on that certain strands of his research in, in my research as I've gone forward. And I'm just wondering, like, what kind of lessons, what kind of yeah lessons or things that they passed to you that you remember? The most important things that they passed to you this? Why they inspired you? Um, I think with, with um, Neil, he just sort of emanates this love of you know, plants and love of research. And, and I think that's massively inspiring. And I think with uh, Martin, he was also my postdoc supervisor, actually. He understands that research starts with humans, you know, um, that the people in his team are really important and um, that you need to look after them first in order to do re proper research, you know, research well. And I think that was pretty inspiring as well. So that's why you, on your, on your Twitter page, you have been, well, like is your research philosophy. Actually, I really like that thing. Like that, that you want to, to do interesting stuff. You want to help people, the world, and you want to work with nice people. So is it him that inspired you that gives you this research philosophy? I, I think um, that's a cumulative inspiration of all sorts of people that I've worked with over the last few years. The reason why I did that is because um, when you're doing uh, your sort of graduate certificate in teaching at university, they make you write a teaching philosophy, which is one of those things that is a bit vomit inducing and you don't want to do it. And you've got to think about, well, what is... What it, why do I teach, what's important to me, et cetera, et cetera, which is always a little bit meh if you're a scientist. You're not very good at reflection, I don't think. No. <laughs> and, uh, no. Well, I'm <laughs> not, not anyway. We're not trained no. for that. <laughs> no. And um, so I thought, <coughs> all right, then, if we've, if we've got to write a teaching philosophy, why don't I write my own research philosophy? Because research is, you know, equally important to me. And so I thought, I sat down, I thought, well, you know, I've got all these opportunities that I could say yes to. Um, what is actually important to me? What is going to make me happy as a researcher? Um, and then I just sat down and wrote it. And that's, so it's been inspired by all sorts of people. But um, I think it's really important to think about what you value, actually, um, and what's important to you. Uh, in, in life, but as a researcher as well. I remember reading also Nature Careers, where you feature 
your top tips uh, and also your experience of starting your own lab. So that's why the next question, it's about how you end up in this job and how has been so far um, recurring people having your own students and exactly like you're mentioning, implementing your research philosophy. Um, well, ha to start at the beginning, so I, I, I was annoyed about something in my postdoc. And so I started on a sort of Tuesday afternoon to look for jobs, right? And um, I found this job eventually, and I thought, well, that's double my salary at the moment. It's permanent. Um, and so it's so ridiculous. I'm just going to apply for it anyway. And what happened is that I won't get I won't get an interview. And then when I don't get an interview, I can ask, um, you know, the people involved. Oh, you know, I was wondering if I could get some tips about why I don't get the interview. And then they could tell me some things, right? And then at the end of my postdoc, when I'm ready to get another job, I can use these tips and uh, uh, in my interview technique. So that's what I did. And then I did get an interview and I was like, right, okay, well, I've got an interview, but I'm, I'm not going to get the job. So I don't need to worry about actually the realities of moving to Australia at all. And so when I don't get the job, I can ask them about what it is in the interview that I did that uh, means that, um, that I can improve on. And then I did get the job. So they phoned me back about, uh, <coughs> I don't know, about half an hour later or something and said, do you want the job? And I said, yeah, sure. And then I phoned my um, then boyfriend, who's now my husband, and said, how do you want to move to Tasmania? And he said, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and that was kind of it. So, um, so that's how I got into it. And then, so I haven't really prepped my brain at all. And then in the three months between getting the job and moving to Tasmania, my husband finished his thesis and had his viva and we packed up our house, which we were, oh no, we finished renovating it and packed it up and we got married, right, in three months. Um, I don't recommend doing that, by the way, but it did get everything done. Oh God. <laughs> and and so, yeah, sorry, this, this is a slightly rambling story, but you'll see where oh, I'm yeah. going with this. So, um, and then we moved into Australia, which tells me I'd never been to Australia before. We rocked up in, we went on honeymoon on the way actually. Um, and then between, just to uh, save time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally we went to West Papua um, and went to honeymoon West Papua and then we arrived in Australia I'd never been here before and we rocked up and as we were taking the plane uh, from the mainland to Tasmania um, I looked I had done all my research previously on uh, ryegrass uh, like lolium species and I looked out of the plane and it was January, and so there was no green anywhere in the sort of middle of Tasmania. And I went, there's no ryegrass here. And I held my husband's hand and I was very scared. Anyway, so I arrived. And I arrived in January, there's nobody here because everybody was on holiday. And what I would say is that, um, you know, I found moving to another country and setting up my own lab quite difficult. So, you know, coming to a new country is hard, whatever you're doing. Setting up uh, your own lab in a new country is really hard, especially if you don't know anybody, which I didn't, um, because you don't know anything about funding. You don't know anything about the educational system. It, it, it's not easy. And I did find it really difficult, 
particularly for the first sort of two, two and a half years, as well as all the sort of personal stuff that goes along with moving 10,000 miles um, away from your, from your home where you've been living for however many years. Um, and so it took some time, basically. And that's what I would say is that if you're setting up your own lab, then if it's something that's unfamiliar, someplace that's unfamiliar and all that kind of stuff, then you've got to give yourself grace. Um, of letting yourself have enough time and and then the right things will come to you but it was good I mean I focused on uh, trying to get my research embedded trying to definitely 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 talk to as many people as possible I didn't know anybody basically in Australia as a researcher and so I tried to network as much as possible in my area but also in my university in different disciplines so I've now got really nice collaborations with um, zoology and geology and health and medicine and all these kind of things, which allow me to have, and, and uh, marine science, which allow me to have these really nice interdisciplinary projects, which, you know, allows, allows me to have, to also access a lot of different funding, because once you start doing interdisciplinary projects, then you can start to um, access funding that's not necessarily just for agriculture or you know just for pasture or whatever it is so that's what I did it's going all right <laughs> that's very brave uh, so I love this story <laughs> but, but anyway this it's like the right person right time and it was yeah to be because we all know about you know these postdoc loop that you can go on after academia and it's always like quite hard to find these academic jobs but it's it's fantastic that it worked and now you're here <laughs> No, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, and I am spectacularly lucky. I mean, that, that, that is true, right? You know, it's, um, I have to also acknowledge my privilege, right? I, you know, my first language is English. I'm white, you know, I'm come from a sort of middle-class background. You know, I, you have to acknowledge these things that do advantage you in the world, for sure. Um, you know, I'm not a man, that would help. But um, <laughs> apart from that, you know, I'm not, I don't have a disability, you know, uh, I'm pretty privileged, basically. Um, but I am, I'm privileged, but I'm also lucky, you know, it, it just happened to work out for you, for me. And what I would say as advice to anybody who's looking for jobs and is finding it very disheartening, is that if they, if they don't want you, you definitely don't want them. Mm -hmm. Because it's not the job, for, if they don't want you, you don't want to be there. So mm -hmm. that's, um, and that's really hard to take when you have applied for a lot of jobs. And I had a similar experience when I applied for a lot of PhD projects, which I didn't get into. Oh, yeah, me, me too. It was horrible. Yeah. Um, but if they don't want you, you definitely don't want them. That's my advice. I love that. I, I really love this advice. Thank you so much for sharing this with us, with everyone. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, next question is, besides your role as a lecturer, what other activities do you involve yourself in? Ah, oh, well, you mean, you mean at work, presumably? We know you uh, were participating in RAID uh, as a member, yeah. obviously, and also so you have your page on Twitter, you're very active. I, I think you also manage the jobs in agriculture, right? you curate oh yeah I do yes so, I've oh, forgotten about that 
side projects <laughs> that look really cool. I mean, you are more or less involved in a few things like that. Gotcha. So, um, so yeah, so obviously as a lecturer, I teach and I do research, um, but I also have a certain component of my work, which is associated with what we call service. Now that's always quite ill-defined, um, I think. And I do lots of things. So I'm, uh, yes, on the um, I'm on the Crawford Committee for Tasmania. I'm a, um, in the RAID Committee for Tasmania. Um, I am the Secretary of the Australian Grassland Association, um, which is a, uh, we have a symposium um, every year um, around pasture. And yeah, I also run a Twitter feed, which is, to do with um, agricultural science and plant science jobs. Um, so it's called uh, Academic Ag. Yeah, it, that's quite fun actually, because you can see what kind of jobs are coming up. Um, I can advise my students much better. Um, and it helps me keep an eye on what kind of skills people are looking for, which I think is quite interesting. For, not for me, but mainly for my students and my postdocs, you know, people who are looking for jobs. So. Um, so yeah, um, I also run uh, writing retreats for uh, early career researchers. So I don't run very fancy ones. We basically just go to another part of the university uh, where nobody knows us and we sit there and write um, oh. for a few hours. <laughs> That's also cool. Like that, that is, well, I heard of these shut up and <laughs> write sessions on Zoom that usually are for finishing PhD students who are like at the stage of thesis writing. But I think this applies to pretty much all academic levels when you really need to just focus on writing. That's we it. should do that as well. We should plan this as well. <laughs> I really recommend it. Yeah. So, so we did it basically with zero budget. So all we do is go to a different part of the university that we don't have to pay for the room or anything. And then we write for two hours and we have a half an hour break and then we write for another two hours and then we're done. And it's mostly students who are writing up, but I try and encourage PhD students who are earlier in their candidature chair to actually join us because I think writing from pretty much from the very beginning is very helpful. Even it doesn't even have to be writing. It can actually be data analysis or something else that basically something you need to concentrate on that you need to have a quiet space for. And um, I started it really because I wanted to do it for myself because I wasn't publishing. I didn't feel like I was publishing enough um, and I didn't feel like I was dedicating enough time to writing. And so, and then I just invited some people I knew and said, do you want to, I'm going, do you want to come? And they said, yeah, all right. Yeah. So we've been doing that. That's been really helpful. Great initiative. Definitely. Oh yeah, it is. And also, I love the Twitter page. I'm probably the first one who's looking <laughs> at every single post that comes up. But I definitely have to say, because I'm in animal science research, and Charlotte is plants, so I will yeah, crop science. Crop science. So I would recommend everyone listening to go check the Twitter page. Is um, academic ag, so it's academic ag, ag jobs, and also follow Beth. Thanks, guys. Yes. <laughs> well, my Twitter handle is at Beth Penrose. That's it. So yeah, no, that that would be great. Um, there are actually because my students often tell me there's no jobs, there's no jobs, and if you want to live in a specific like city, 
that's hard. It's not impossible, but it's hard. If you're willing to move, there's actually a lot of jobs. Not jobs for everybody, for sure. There's more PhD graduates than there are jobs, for sure. But uh, there's a surprising number, is what I would say. But how do you know which job is for you? This is what Charlotte struggles with. <laughs> She doesn't know what to do. She likes a lot of things. Like, yes, I like a lot, of, a lot of things. And I don't know what, it, what is right for me. Like, how do you know when, is, when something is right for you without knowing? <laughs> That's hard, right? It's hard. So I, I think the best place to start is to think about what is important to you. So to some people, it's very important to live near their family, you know, uh, near where they grew up or something. For some people, it's about, uh, you know, it's important for them to live in a big city rather than living in a small town. Uh, for some people, it's really important for them to work with a group who's, you know, publishing really high impact papers all the time. And sometimes it's, you know, it might be important for people to work with farmers or growers or whatever um, and there's all sorts of things that you can think about when you think about well, what is really important to me and I think genuinely sitting that down either by yourself or I find it helpful with a friend um, is to think what is really important to me and then check that when you apply for a job those things are satisfied because if you're not happy And if your values are not being, um, you know, met, then you're not going to love the job. It doesn't matter what it's doing. Um, you're not going to like it. Don't do so. my job philosophy. Yeah. The yeah. Research philosophy, the job philosophy. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Thank you. And things where you would not compromise on or like that, yeah. you know. Must. Exactly. And then, and sometimes that's jobs that's to do with like the actual doing of the job as well you know sometimes it's like I don't want to ever be in the lab again or I, I don't want to work in the field or I do want to work in the field or you know I want to and then also you can you can think a little bit about what you want to do afterwards so for example if you go into being a technician um, in a university it can be not always but it can be hard then to become a researcher again Right. And so if you if you're happy to be a technician um, and continue to develop those skills, then that's cool. But if you actually want a postdoc mm -hmm. and then you it's not impossible to go from being a technician to being a postdoc. Absolutely not. But it's harder, um, particularly if you're moving institutions. You might also want to think about what you want to do in the future. But I, th I think too much really is focused upon to do with career planning in that way I think I think there's too much uncertainty in the world to be able to do it very well um or I personally I haven't been able to do it very well put it that way um and so I would say that it's much more important to think about well what is important to me at this time how am I going to satisfy that and then the rest will come I think that's amazing awesome. <laughs> thank you you recently came back to work as we mentioned before you being on maternity leave now back to a full-time demanding job how are you balancing what are your tips to achieve or try at least to balance these work-life commitments and well we are all in a pandemic so we know it's already oh, challenging <laughs> but 
well I mean I might be more wise about it in the year I don't know but um well I gotta recognize my privilege first right so my husband doesn't want to work full-time and so the moment he works one and a half days a week and he's just starting another project soon where he'll be working sort of three and a half days a week and so he is my our son goes to daycare three days a week and he's looked after by my husband two days a week um and if we didn't have that it would be significantly more challenging I think to have that kind of balance I'm also very privileged because we have a daycare that's on the university campus and so twice a day at the moment I go down to breastfeed my son and I can do that so I just walk down the hill I breastfeed him at the daycare and then I walk back up and I do that twice a day you know I think that's I'm lucky but also I've chosen to do that so I think there's a balance really about engineering these things and being a bit lucky I would say that I have always been a person who likes to leave their work at work and even you know during my PhD I was you know I worked set hours and then I I shut down my computer every day and I don't open it up until the next morning um and I recommend that for everybody and I also write a list before I leave every evening of what I'm going to do the next day and I have a weird um, sort of weirdly obsessive about lists but um, I sort of move things that I haven't done from that day onto the next day's list. I don't have to think about it then. It's not in my brain. I don't have to try and remember it. It's written down. And then in the morning, I just look at my list and I say, what do I need to do today? And then I can choose what the most important thing is to start with. But yeah, but it is, you know, it's hard. Doing your job with no sleep is challenging. And you feel guilty. You know, mum guilt is real. Uh, parent guilt is real. And I'm just very lucky that at daycare, I reckon... They look after him better than I could in lots of ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. We started talking about privilege because that's something that uh, these days goes unknown. Uh, as you mentioned, if we are white, if, well, certainly men have privilege as well. And we not often recognize those things and how perhaps that helps us all as well achieve things. And yeah, we, we just have to start recognizing it as Yes, like I think, yeah, we, we don't have to start in big. We just even small, small steps make a change. It's like even fighting climate change is the same. I guess, but when you think on in the sense of um, just perhaps we can focus on agriculture and how it is. The reason, one of the reasons why we did this podcast is because we wanted to highlight the stories of women. And that means it needs to be a diversity of women Um indigenous hopefully we will get more of those speakers as well um yeah and in diverse fields as well but yeah it's it's a good thing to think about this um we all uh well the the basis of the podcast also is to have more representation of women in agricultural science um visibility i'm bringing visibility um so in your opinion um what can we encourage to young women um, to see agriculture as a viable career path, because we definitely hate the fact that people might think of agriculture and uh, white men with the hat and the... Yeah, it's um, it's a toughie. I think, I mean, I have, co I have come up against a lot of sexism in my career. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that. 
it does exist and it's not very nice. Um, and I think um, it's, I would. How did you cope? Oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Sorry, you, how did you? Yeah, yeah. How, how did you cope with like having this negative negativity, sexism? How did you cope with that? Um, in the moment, um, you know, I guess I'm British, so we're sort of slightly sarcastic all the time. So sarcasm can be a good tool. I think that you have to combat. I mean, it's very difficult if you're early in your career like very early in your career, it's really hard to combat it um, head on in the moment because there's a power dynamic generally that means you are the least powerful person in the room generally. Um, and that is very hard. Um, I think one way of I've done it is to find female role models, which I found actually quite difficult to find within my own discipline. Sometimes, so I found them in other disciplines, you know, in physics or health or all sorts of other ones, because it's not unique to agriculture for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think I've combated it by being incredibly stubborn and essentially trying to do good things despite of everything that's going on. So if you're successful after a while, people have to respect you because most people who are sexist are actually a bit insecure. And once other people around the organization, for example, starts telling them, oh, you know, Charlotte, she's great, isn't she? Then they don't say, no, she isn't. Um, even though that's what they think. They, they start to agree, right? And after a while, this sort of, there's societal pressure upon them to be a little bit more respectful. And so, but being successful and being good at what you do is one way of getting to that point, yeah. I'd love to say that the answer is to go and see senior people and then um, tell them all about it and then they fix it. But the fact is that in my experience, that hasn't quite happened. They say, right, that it's like, oh yeah, too bad that happened to you. And then they forget nothing yeah. that's anything about it. And it's funny because we used to ask our speakers or people that and women that we used to have um, in the past uh, if they have ever encountered difficulties in a meltdown yeah. environment, which is agriculture. And it will be um, a wide range of responses, like people that it will be like, no, uh, being very lucky, others. Um, that yes. just acknowledge those things so yeah. we yeah we never know what to expect when you ask these <laughs> but we know it exists and yeah. we are as a well as a young women in our culture we're hoping that this will change um, precisely by highlighting the hard work that women perform we're as equally capable as men Uh, I was reading the statistics that in agriculture, probably more than half of the workforce are women. It's just that the, the problem seems or the link seems to be missing at the leadership stage when it's about doing decisions where we're missing representation. And I guess in academia, the equivalent is having women at the top um, of the career, like professors. Um, yeah, because they drop, they, they leave. Most of the women, they leave after PhD or after 
postdoc because it's too hard. It's not too hard for, but it's too hard to maintain a family. It's like women doesn't, well, not all the women has the privilege to have a husband or have someone, you know, at home. And so they're forced to drop because of the, the situation and there is not like a help at work. Yeah. So because we have different needs than a man, but we're equally good as them. Yeah. I mean, I also think that that, if people, if women or anybody experiences um, sexism or racism or whatever it is at work, you know, it just becomes, for a lot of people, it just becomes untenable. Where they're like, this isn't worth it anymore. And I'm hoping that, you know, certainly as I progress in my career already, um, you know, I'm much more, the power dynamic is shifting, right? So I'm able to, it's much easier for me to call these things out when I see it for myself, but also when I see it for colleagues, when I see it for uh, students, all these kind of things, it's easier to challenge these things now. And and I'm in a position of privilege because my perm- my position is permanent, right? So it's really hard for them to get rid of me. And so if you are in that position, I think you hold this responsibility actually to be, um, to call these things out much more often. Um, if you're in a postdoc situation or a casual situation where your um, where your job is controlled by other people's grants or whatever, then that's a much harder position to be um, headstrong and to call these things out because your situation is precarious. Um, so I think you know anybody who's in a permanent position has a massive responsibility to try and call anything out that they know is wrong. But yeah, I mean, the School of Agriculture, which is sort of tier now where I work, uh, has been going, I think, since the 1960s. But it's only in, I think, 2017 or 2018 that we got our first ever professor that's a woman. So it's taken a long time. We will see hopefully more (laughs) of these women coming up on the different fields of agriculture, which to me, it's, it's inspiring and I um, am glad that I had the chance to talk to a few of them who are on their way to achieve this so really nice and yeah I'm sure we will see Beth as professor very <laughs> soon in the future so but before so. going and closing our interview I'm dying to ask how is it living in, on a boat yes <laughs> I'm just dying for them to know that. So, so actually, currently, we're, we're sort of homeless, actually, because our boat is in Queensland and we're in Tasmania at the moment. But um, it's great. I love living on a boat. It simplifies your life in so many ways. It makes it much easier to um, distinguish between work and um, home because you haven't got enough room, really, to bring anything, any work from home. So... Uh, we used to have we used to live in a 30 foot boat which was probably the inside space was probably not much bigger than my office um but now we when we knew we were having a baby we bought a larger boat um so it's slightly bigger but there's not a huge amount of room and so it's it's great we um we did what we like to call boat eternity leave so we um we, we sailed from we left when we sailed from Tasmania. We left when my son was 10 weeks old and we sailed across Bass Strait and we sailed uh, two and a half thousand miles um, to the Whitsunday Islands in northern Queensland. Um, and 
uh, yeah, it was great. And that's what we did on fake eternity leave um, for wow. five months. Yeah, Very yeah. Easy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was, it's great. So you have your home with you, so you have all your stuff with you. Um, how long you've been, like how long you've been living in a boat and why you decided to live in a boat? Um, yeah, so, well, we've lived in a boat for about three and a half years. Yeah, probably almost four years. And we knew that as soon as we got the, I got the job in Tasmania that we wanted to live on a boat because uh, we had a boat where we lived in Lancaster. Um, but it's way too cold and wet and horrible in Britain to live on a boat. And so when we knew we were moving to Australia, we were like, right, now is the time to live on a boat. And we bought our boat about six months after moving to Tasmania. And then we moved uh, from, our, from our apartment to the boat about six months later um and we've lived on boats ever since and i i don't like living in a house living in a house sucks um <laughs> and it's great you don't have a lot of stuff you're very connected to the na to nature and the outside and you feel constantly kind of rejuvenated by nature um you know you get dolphins and whales and not whales very often in the marina but you get dolphins mm -hmm. and you you do when you're sailing but dolphins in the marina you know puff of fish and seahorses and um penguins <laughs> so we get penguins in the marina um, wow. and all these kind of things yeah so um it's just a great way to live is my opinion but it's not for everybody for sure <laughs> um, we should do we should do an entire episode on how to live on a boat <laughs> With yeah that. yeah i'll shut up about it now <laughs> um, That's no, I love sailing, but I think I would never live on a boat. My father, for sure, this is it's like his dream to live on a boat. But I just like sometimes <laughs> do like a holiday on the boat. That's perfectly fine, but not living. <laughs> I think that's true so, for a lot of people. <laughs> so we we're at the end. Yes, we are almost. But, before, before leaving, we would like to ask you last question. So what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I thought really hard about this. I don't know whether I'm really wise enough, that kind of thing, but um, to be patient, I'm not very patient as a person and I'm working <laughs> on it. Um, but I think there's surprisingly um, a, lot of, a lot of options uh, for you as a, a younger person who, you know, has skills and is interested in all those kind of things. And I think, although I'm so pleased about where I've ended up, I think I was very worried, unnecessarily so, about, you know, the next step and sort of getting on and all these kind of things. And I think evidently if you don't have any money and you need a job, then that's stressful and you need a job to live. But... Um, in general, I would give myself advice to be a bit more um, chilled about, you know, uh, waiting for opportunities to sort of present themselves because that actually happens way more than I ever thought it would. And once you choose something, often your choosing means that you are not choosing something else. And so, uh, and I don't think I quite really understood that when I was younger. So I don't regret any of it, but I think it would be, it would have been much less stressful anyway if I was a lot more patient. Yeah. That's... Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for everything. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, you're welcome. 
and applies to anyone like us at the yeah. stage of their PhD. Make sure you are patient. Uh, but anyway, look out for opportunities. So make sure you keep your options open. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, those two things I think come together. Um, also, I guess I want to say, you know, that um, if there are young women in agriculture who want to, you know, know about uh, academic life and and how to, you know, making decisions and all these kind of things and opportunities and stuff like that, then then they're very welcome to contact me. Awesome. I might necessarily email them back immediately, um, you know, within ten minutes or whatever, but I will get back to you. And because I think it's really important, to, there's not a lot of representation basically, and I'm very happy to help. If, if that's helpful to other people. Yeah, thanks for that, Beth. And Can I contact you? <laughs> of course. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much, Beth, for the lovely chat. We had a really yeah. good time learning about yourself and the work you do and the things you're involved in. So very, very interesting episode and I hope everyone else enjoys it as well. And I hope they will get inspired and they will learn about your wisdom, actually. <laughs> you have a lot of wisdom. <laughs> You're awesome. Oh, thanks very much, guys. Well, it was really enjoyable. Thank you so much.